Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is wonderful to be here at Capitol Hill Baptist Church on this Lord's Day. And I have looked forward to, for so long to being here with you. And uh, I bring you greetings from Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and greetings from uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. There are many who think of you and uh, pray for you and uh, in our own place worship with you and all the saints and rejoice in what the Lord has done here. Uh, it was over 30 years ago that I became president of the Southern Seminary. It was about, uh, well, a year later that Mark Dever came here as pastor. And uh, you can do the math. And that means that both of us have spent basically our adult lives and the greater portion of our ministry where the Lord has us right now. And uh, one of the things I tell young men on our campus is that one of the means of grace in terms of God's gifts to us uh, beyond our salvation, but for the formation of our character and for our edification uh, is the friends we will have in the faith. And I'm so thankful for this friend. And I rejoice in seeing what the Lord has done and is doing. And I just want to encourage you, especially those who are young, choose carefully, uh, but unabashedly and intentionally make friendships in the gospel and in Christ's service for the glory of God that will serve you well for the rest of your life and pray serve the church as well. Now, of all the things the Lord has given us and given us here, uh, just imagine my joy, and I speak uh, for Mary also, as Mary is here with me, of course, uh, our joy in uh, seeing things come full circle in a way we could never have imagined with Riley and Katie and Benjamin and Henry and Mary Margaret being right here in this congregation. I see them seated there. I just want you to know that we absolutely rejoice in uh, a little girl who at age two does her best to sing a mighty fortress standing at the coffee table. Uh, hearing little voices in the night going to sleep by singing the great hymns of the faith uh, as heard here. I'm so thankful that uh, the Lord brought Riley and Katie together and brought them into the life of this church. And it's just, just imagine my joy and forgive me for speaking of that joy. Uh, in being here with you. It just is a sign of God's blessing going beyond anything we could ask or think. And uh, I can just say that I want to be with God's people wherever I can be most deployed for the glory of God. But having grandchildren here really helps. <laughs> That's just, a, it's just an honest statement. Just an honest statement. And also, grandchildren are honest. I've been preaching nearly 50 years, nearly a half century means very little to a five-year-old. <laughs> Last night at the dinner table, Henry looked at me with full seriousness and said, shouldn't you be practicing your preaching? <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> well, of course I should, actually. This is a, it's a, just good to know that there's always someone concerned in the congregation. <laughs> What's your delight? want to direct our attention as we have already sung this morning and has already served as a major theme 
for our worship this morning, the 19th Psalm. And for our profit and for God's glory, we need to read it aloud. I'm going to read it for us as Israel heard, and we now hear this psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thus we read from the Psalter, from the liturgy and prayer book of Israel, from the liturgy and prayer book of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus are we directed to this particular psalm, which is in a sequence. Thus we are directed to these words, which give such majestic testimony to the revelation of God. Now, if someone were to ask you, why are you here this morning, there would be many answers you might give. But at the base of all of this is the fact that God is and He speaks. It's not enough that God is because we sinful creatures would not know Him except for the fact He speaks. When I was a teenager trying to understand these things, and it was first made part of my awareness that there were those who denied the Bible as the Word of God, who were, were seeking to subvert the inspiration and authority of Scripture, who were speaking of the Bible as ancient Near Eastern literature, and were, were speaking of it disparagingly. Into my life came some friends of the gospel, some uh, teachers of truth and righteousness, uh, some who were apologists, and some who were pastors and friends, and, and, and they brought great health into my life. Some of them, some of them were far away, and some of them were dead. One of them was then in Switzerland. His name was Francis Schaeffer. 
He wrote a series of books, three of them in particular, often referred to as his trilogy. He had a magnificent ministry, especially reaching out to college students and the disaffected youth of the 60s and the 70s. I was 16 when I first started reading what Francis Schaeffer had written in that trilogy. It was given to me by older Christians who deeply cared for me. And at 16, I can tell you that I had no idea what I was reading. Sometimes, by the way, you need to read books because they bring confidence into your life and into your soul, which you don't understand in terms of the totality of their substance. But nonetheless, God uses them. So let me tell you, I lived for a while on the title of one of Francis Schaeffer's books. He is there and he is not silent. Okay, so Schaeffer got into all kinds of ideas. And, and actually, I understood a lot of it. The more I read it, the more I worked on it, the more I understood the defense of propositional truth and propositional revelation of, 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 of the faith as, as truths, eternal. And so all, all of that really helped. But honestly, it was the title of the book that was enough for a while. He is there and he is not silent. That's the confidence behind this psalm, identified in the beginning as a psalm of David addressed to the choir master for Israel to sing. If we talk about revelation, we ought to at least define what we're talking about. You know the word well enough without going into all the background. It's an unveiling. It's a, it, 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 it is because it's very hard to avoid using the word, it's a revealing of something. It's an unveiling. It's a disclosure. And, 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 and it comes with content. And that content is personal. And that content in the Scripture is also propositional. It comes in various forms of Scripture in terms of the literary shape of various passages. I was helped by another writer also as a very young man, and that was J.I. Packer. And I, I came to him later and, and, uh, and, and, and I was struck by how straightforwardly J.I. Packer, great Anglican evangelical, I was struck by how straightforwardly he just defined giant theological issues. And so in speaking about the revelation of God in Scripture and in speaking about the inspiration and authority of Scripture, he said it comes down to a simple formula. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. That is incredibly clarifying. Not that in certain texts of Scripture, when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. Not that in Scripture there is speech that just might be close to God's speech. But rather that when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. It's straightforward. It's, it's easy to understand. It's a simple English sentence. And thanks be to God, it is profoundly true. Thanks be to God, we are saved. To speak of revelation is to speak of the alternative. If indeed God did not love us and so graciously give himself to us and the knowledge of himself in revelation, let's just be very honest. It is not that we would know little of him. It's that we would know nothing of him, including the fact that we knew nothing of him. Now, you say it's very... It's very difficult for you to imagine that. Even prior to hearing the preaching of the gospel, you had a sense that there is a God. You look at a toddler. The toddler does something wrong. 
She hasn't even been told not to do that yet. But somehow that toddler already knows this is that which she should not have done, and she hides herself behind the sofa. From whom is she hiding? It's a little picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. More on that in just a moment. The point is that that too we need to understand is God's revelation. The the knowledge that drives that toddler behind the sofa hiding from a gaze of judgment, that, that knowledge too is revelation. Many of us in this room bear the imprint of Carl Henry. I just had to think with joy in hearing of a Henry lecture in his name. Longtime member of this church, Sunday school teacher in this church, and mentor to me, to Mark, and to so many others. Carl Henry was, uh, was Germanic in his background. His wife's name was Helga. That makes the point. <laughs> All right? Germanic, Teutonic. Carl Henry loves words. He signed a contract for a two-volume work that was to be entitled God, Revelation, and Authority. It ended up being a six-volume work that led the publisher to stop publishing in that entire area. Couldn't afford another author like Carl Henry. Carl Henry was not often accused of being poetic. He, he, was, he, he was just, he was prosaic, uh, capital P. But I'll never forget reading as a college student Carl Henry's poetic definition of revelation. He said, revelation is God's gracious self-disclosure by which he makes himself known to the very creatures who rebelled against him. God's gracious self-disclosure. This is, is, we don't find God out. We, we, we don't search him out. He's uh, impossible for us to find. We don't even know that we're searching for him without some degree of revelation. And all of God's revelation is, in a sense, as Calvin describes, a condescension. It, 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 it's, it's the one who reveals himself loving those to whom he reveals himself so much that he, as Henry said, robs himself of his own personal privacy. Isn't that amazing? God loves us so much that he robbed himself of his own personal privacy so that his sinful creatures would know him. All right. As we look at Psalm 19, I want us to see this morning a twofold form of divine revelation. There are stanzas that stand out in this psalm because they describe to us the twofold form of divine revelation. And there are many among evangelicals who mistake the recognition of this twofold form. And there are some who fail to see the first form of divine revelation as divine revelation. And that's devastating for Christian faithfulness. It's also devastating to our understanding of the glory of God in this world. Let's look to the text. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Then the testimony about the sun. This is what we would call natural revelation. It's actually demonstrated here to be in nature. Nature is calling forth the glory of God. It's the heavens first and then the firmament or the sky above. As you look at verse 1, the heavens, which is to say that is beyond the firmament, declares the glory of God. There is a declaration being made, and you'll notice that it's propositional in form. The firmament and the sky, the cosmic realities above us, the sun and the moon and the stars, the clouds, and this is just looking up, just looking up, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Every single aspect of the heavens, every single aspect of the firmament declaring, I am not an accident. I was made, and the one who made me is the sovereign glorious creator God of the universe who made you. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. We'll see in this passage that there are three movements. The first movement is this in which we are told the heavens are telling the glory of God. The second movement speaks of the Scripture, the law of the Lord is perfect. The third movement is the application of these things. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The heavens declare the firmament, the handiwork of God, declares the fact that it was made. Everything about this is the creator-creation distinction. It is not the creation that defines the creator, it is the creator that defines the creation, and in the creation has revealed himself. The volume of this is spectacular. This isn't a little bit of revelation. This is revelation that is also described as general revelation, as distinct from special revelation. And so, even as you have the distinction between natural revelation, that which is found in nature, and supernatural revelation, not perfect in terms of understanding these things. We have to unpack some of this because it's a supernatural creator who made the world. But the point is that the forms of special or supernatural revelation are clearly initiated by God in forms of speech and specific self-disclosure. But all persons everywhere, all persons, no matter when they live and no matter where they live, no matter the culture in which they are embedded, the language which they speak, available to them and indeed encompassing all about them is this revelation of God. It's in the sky, the heavens, it's in the firmament. All creation, every atom and every molecule is crying out, not only that there is a creator, but as we read in Romans chapter 1, the specific content is such that even God's eternal nature, even His invisible attributes are revealed in the things that have been made. 
Now, it's humbling to us, and we'll have to think about this in just a moment, but it's humbling to us to recognize that we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, regenerate followers, Christians, we walk outside and we, and we see the sky, and, and we see the firmament, which was in, in the Old Testament in particular, it, it is the, the first level that includes the blue that you see in the day, like a ceiling over the earth. That is the firmament. Clouds move across the firmament of the sky. The heavens are that which is beyond, and, and, and even to the ancients was visible and mysterious. It's, it cries out, what do these things mean? The twinkling stars at night, the moon at night, the sun. More about that in just a moment during the day. Even we as Christians, when we walk outside, you know, it, at least in terms of the perfection and the power of God's revelation in nature, we should be able to walk outside, look up, and see the steadfastness of God's love. We should be able to look up and see God's grace and God's mercy, God's justice and God's righteousness. All the perfections of God we refer to as the attributes of God, even His invisible attributes, says Paul, are clearly seen. They're all there. Righteousness and grace and love, <laughs> omnipotence and omniscience. You just go down the, the list of all the Perfections of God, they're all there. But I just want to make very clear that as much as they are there, we did not take a break in our singing to go outside and look up. We're inside looking at the Scriptures, and this, this psalm helps us to understand why. But verse 2 speaks of this volume. In other words, this isn't a little bit of information. This is an overwhelming mass of information. It's a, it's a torrent of information coming by revelation. The words are unforgettable. Day by day pours forth speech. This isn't a trickle. This isn't a little stream. This is a constant barrage of divine revelation coming to us. And it's also true that it is twofold in another sense. It is external to us, but it's also internal to us. Because the Bible makes very clear that this natural revelation, general revelation, made available to all persons everywhere includes what John Calvin called the sensus divinitas, or a seed of divinity, a sense of divinity. And, and in other words, we're made in God's image. We're, we're, this, is, this does distinguish us from the animals. You may think your animal worships. He doesn't. You, maybe, you think. If you're honest, you're not even sure about that. But, but the point is that human beings made in God's image, as Jay Budachevsky says, that there are things we cannot not know simply because of how God made us in His image. He, he made us to know Him, and there's actually a knowledge of Him in us. And, and that's a part of what drives that toddler behind the sofa. There's a knowledge, there's, there's a knowledge, you know, there's a knowledge that we're being watched. There's a knowledge that someone knows the mechanical movements of my heart. There's a knowledge that there is right and wrong 
And it, it is not ultimately something that comes from within me. It's not even ultimately something that comes from my parents. It's not even ultimately something that comes from the governor or the president or the Supreme Court. Ultimately, there is some sense of a rightness and a wrongness and of the yearning for truth. This passage on natural revelation or general revelation, I sometimes make the distinction between visual and verbal revelation. And I, I find that especially as I'm talking to congregations, that sometimes helps because that's exactly what we're seeing because the Apostle Paul says, in the things that are seen, those things that have been made, the things that are seen, they're evident in them. And, and there, there is a sense in which we know so much with our eyes visual signs given to all persons everywhere in all time and all places. But special revelation, as we shall see, is verbal. It's words, and by the way, always has been. All right, before we, 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 we go further, we just need to pause for a moment and understand some of the beautiful language that's used here about natural revelation. Day-to-day -day pours out speech. There's that volume. Night-to-night -night reveals knowledge. And once again, this is serious cognitive doctrinal content. There are many people who think of natural revelation as a vague sense of God's existence. Now, the Apostle Paul says even his invisible attributes are, are there. They should be clearly seen in the things that are made. And, and, and the volume is so great. And the volume is not just a sense. It's not just a mood. It's not just what the Germans would call gestalt. It's content. It's knowledge. It's day-to-day -day pours out speech, and night-to-night -night reveals knowledge. I think there are some evangelicals even who are just, just, just a little hesitant to admit that natural revelation brings knowledge, but David is not. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, David insists that night-to-night -night reveals knowledge. But verse 3 is absolutely crucial. It's not verbal. The distinction between the visual and the verbal, it's right here. This knowledge does not come in words. It's the apprehension of the world around us and the world within us. And yet, these, these forms of natural revelation, general revelation, are worldwide. And, and they're visible in the world that we see, in which we live, in the world that we experience the external world and the internal world. And then look at verse 5. In them, in, in, in the expanse, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, so this is not a diversion. Kind of feels that way a little bit, because we've been talking about the speech is pouring forth, and we were told that this is not verbal, it is visual. In other sense, you, you experience in the external world and the internal world. You need to know that the sun is the illustration that the psalmist points us to. Okay, anthropologists will say that in virtually every pagan system, there is some form of the worship of the sun. It turns out one of the oldest idolatrous impulses is to worship the sun, uh, because the sun is so absolutely essential to us and to human life, to biosis, to crops, to warmth, to light. It, we can't live without the sun. 
We also can't live in a world that isn't served predictably by the sun. The, the language that's used here is language that clearly says we don't worship the sun. We worship the creator of the sun. The sun isn't pointing to itself. The sun is pointing to the creator who made the sun. But you know what? The creator's glory is seen in the regularity of the sun and the power of the sun and the warmth of the sun. And as you see here, in the eagerness of the sun to rise. That, that's the beautiful poetic language. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. That's in order to claim his bride. All right. In this room, no doubt many times, uh, there has been a young man and a young woman who has come to be joined in holy matrimony. And you see the, the smile on both their faces, but there's a smile on the bridegroom's face. He's about to receive his bride. He is not eager to... He is not lacking in eagerness to show up at this wedding. He's going to be here at this wedding. Like the bridegroom leaving his chamber, that's the way the sun rises in the sky. Why? It is not because the sun is eager, it's because the Creator is glorious and shows His glory in the regularity. Not merely the existence of the sun, but its, its regularity and, and its strength, like a Strong man runs his course with joy. The rising is from the end of the heavens and the circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, now that all of a sudden you understand something else there. There's nothing hidden. Nothing hidden from the sun. Well, at the end of this psalm, David will make very clear by the Holy Spirit that there is nothing hidden from God, even in the recesses of our own hearts. So there you have it. You have the, the natural or general revelation, and it is affirmed. It's, it's affirmed in so many different ways. It is affirmed in clear propositions in which we are told that there is clear cognitive content to this universal knowledge of God. And there's another issue we just have to face before we leave this stanza, and that is this knowledge is not only available, this knowledge is obligatory. We can't possibly leave this stanza without understanding this is not just given to us for our consideration. This is the revelation of God in nature, in the natural world, made available to all and to which all are accountable. That's why, just as we read in Romans chapter 1, so that they are without excuse. There's no one without, there's no one who has excuse. We're an excuseless species. When the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's not speaking only of those who have heard the Scripture. Speaking of every single human being who's ever lived, all of Adam's seed. And when the binding nature of the law of God, when it comes to something like, well, many of the most controversial issues of our day, we as Christians, we need to look each other in the eye. We actually believe that what Scripture says is that it's obligatory upon all persons everywhere, even creation order. What it means for man to be a man and a woman to be a woman, what it means for a man and a woman to be united in marriage, what it means for a family to be established, what it means for government to be established, such as what we have in Genesis chapter 9. Uh, you, you just go down the list. This is an obligatory knowledge. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 1. Again, just, just go back, and I'm so thankful. I don't need to turn to that text as if you haven't heard it. We've already heard it. 
this morning. There's no one who has any excuse. And, 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 and look, the depravity is that the, the creature corrupts the knowledge of God that is there. There's no fault. So you say, why is Scripture necessary? Because Scripture tells us that nature fails at its task. False! Nature does reveal the fallenness of all, because this is also made very clear. But nature, even as it is, it isn't nature that fails, it's the creature that fails. Because we deny what is visible in there and obligatory. Which is to say, in this case, a declared ignorance is a non-disguised form of disobedience. But that's the first stanza. And the second stanza is about the Scripture. And it's just helpful to understand how this breaks down Jim Hamilton, in his multi-volume work on the Psalms, dealing with Psalm 19, I think, gets it right when he says, you know, one of the ways to understand this is just math. And you say, well, what's math got to do with this? Well, there are are a lot of numbers embedded in this. So let me just walk through them with you. And and just as you look at verses 7 through 9, three verses, there are five references to God's Word. That includes Torah or law, testimony, precepts, commandments, and judgments. That's all there. So there's three verses, five references to God's Word. There is one response to God that is called for, which is the fear. It's fear. There are five characteristics of God's Word. It's integrity, it's trustworthiness, it's uprightness, it's purity, it's truth. There's one character of the fear of God, which is cleanness produced by Scripture, There are four things the Word of God changes. Four things. The soul, the simple, the heart, and the eyes. And there are six things that God does with His Word. Right here in these three verses. He restores. He makes wise. He gives joy. He enlightens. He makes His Word stand forever. And He enacts... (laughs) what Jim Hamilton calls unified righteousness. This is the wholeness of the righteousness to which the man and the woman of God are called. That's really helpful. It was very helpful to me. It's just a matter of the math. Three verses, five references, one response, five characteristics of the Word. One thing produced by the fear of God, which is cleanness. Four things that God does through His Word. Sixth thing the Word does, God does through His Word this multifold work. Again, look at the passage. The stanza is beautiful. It's, it's poetic. Don't, don't fear that. Among the forms of God's scriptural Word, inscripturated Word, are many different forms. Poetry is one of them. It's hard to imagine poetry more beautiful than this. The law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. Now, there's so much to that. This is not just some kind of revives like, hey, we need a revival. This is revive as in was dead and is now alive, was blind, and now I see. Without the word of the Lord, without the law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, our soul is unrevived. The second, the, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Now, this word testimony is, is really 
beautiful. There's a huge background to this, the testimony of the Lord. So in the Scripture, what do we have? We have many things here, but we have the testimony of the Lord. This is the same kind of testimony that's referenced in the book of Joshua, chapter 4, verse 16, where it is the ark of testimony. This is God's revelation. Even as the ark contained the law, it was the ark of testimony. In 1 Kings, chapter 2, verse 3, David speaks to Solomon, keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies as is written in the law of Moses. You talk about God's self-revelation? Well, there it is. It is His testimony. I'd love to hear your testimony of how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God has a testimony, and it is found in Holy Scripture. It is found in written revelation. It is found in canonical revelation. It is found in verbal revelation. He has given us His testimony. And what about His testimony? It makes wise the simple. Now, let me tell you how you ought not to read this. Do not read this as if it is about someone else, okay? Just ponder this with me. This just might be about you because it just happens to be about every single human being. We are the simple who must be made wise. I think we actually know that. I don't think I need to dwell on that any longer. We're only wise because we were simple made wise by the testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right, and, and, and what do the precepts do? They make the heart happy. Uh, again, don't they? I mean, if, this is a soul test too, right? So if, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and we're the ones who know when the Scripture speaks, God speaks, that when the Scriptures speak, we're made happy. Now, this doesn't mean happy in a superficial sense, as you see here. It's, it's, it's rejoicing the heart. We rejoice even when our sin is revealed. We, we rejoice when things are said to us which you know, according to the modern psychotherapeutic age, might not be so affirming. Our job in reading the Scripture is actually only done when we rejoice in every word of God. And it proceeds from His mouth and is given to us in Scripture. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And again, we left to our own devices, could come up with our own commandments, they would be the way that does not lead to life, but the way that leads to death. And, and that's basically what's going on in our society, just as it's been going on since Genesis 3, where there are so many who would say, you know, I, I think I can devise some really good commandments. I, I, I think we could come up with some really good laws. I, I think we have a pretty good idea of, uh, of the structures that would, that, and the precepts and the, the laws and the regulations and the policies that would lead to human happiness. But actually... It's the commandment of the Lord that is pure, and it enlightens the eyes. All, you know, we, we, we see in the law. The law teaches. I mentioned Calvin earlier with the sensus divinitas. I, I also love Luther coming along and saying, you know, the, the Scripture is a schoolteacher. And then a part of what happens in preaching is that we sit to be taught and he didn't appreciate the role of the preacher at all, but he said, look, it is the, the, the Scripture is the school teacher. The, the Scripture is, is the teaching authority. 
Our eyes are enlightened. The law of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And, and, and in this, is a reference to something very close to holiness. But the, the, if we had time, we'd look at this word clean in the Old Testament. It's, it's much more than that. It's, it's, it's acceptable for the covenant. It's, it's that which God not only gives, it is what the Lord requires to be clean. And clean how long? Well, enduring forever insofar as the power of God's Word is concerned. The rules of the, of the Lord, and I love this rules. That's a word. We can certainly understand that. We were in the first grade. Here are the rules. They were put up on the board in giant text. I'm not sure what good that did when we couldn't read yet. <laughs> but we knew the rules were there, and we knew they mattered. The rules of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. There's no mixture of righteous and unrighteousness. They're righteous altogether. More desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is, by, by the words of the Lord, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. All right, just pause for a moment here. The declarations of Psalm 19 about the Torah are extended to all of Scripture, in the Scripture. So the, the perfections of the Word of God that are testified to here about the Torah of Yahweh are extended throughout the Scriptures to the entirety of Scripture. This includes not only the law, but the prophets, the writings. This includes the Gospels. This, this includes the, the epistles. Uh, this includes the entirety of the Scripture. For if time does not allow for us to consider how the church came to know these 66 books of the Old and New Testament as the very Word of God. But it is essential that we state that it is in these 66 books that God speaks. As you know where elsewhere, speaks in the same sense. He speaks in nature. So we have no excuse, but we're still lost. Not because of a failure in nature, but because the creature given our sinfulness has corrupted. The forms of special revelation include divine speech, the, the prophet scripture, of course, the apostolic preaching. Hebrews chapter one tells us the ultimate form of special revelation, God spoke in many and various ways in times past, but he's now spoken to us in the Son. And, and, and in that passage, you know, you have the, the climax of divine revelation. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So that's the pinnacle, the climax of special revelation. There are many things we would say about the perfections of Scripture. There are words we use. It is inspired. In fact, we speak of plenary verbal inspiration. Every word inspired, every word fully inspired. That's the testimony of Scripture. You speak of inerrancy. It does not err. We speak of its infallibility. It doesn't fail. We speak of its 
unbrokenness. It cannot be broken. We speak of its sufficiency. This is a part of what we speak to when we say sola scriptura. We also testify to its soul-sufficient authority for the church's belief and practice. The Bible reveals itself to be totally trustworthy and true, eternal. The Bible also reveals itself to be clear, uh, understandable, also by the Holy Spirit, and self-attesting. It leads to the confession of Christ. It leads to the repentance of sin in believers. It leads to saving faith. And that's why I'm also so glad we went to Romans chapter 10, because where does natural revelation, creational revelation lead? Ultimately, it leads to our absolute indictment as sinful creatures. Where does special revelation lead? Well, for those who believe, it leads to salvation. Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. It's, it's the word. Faith comes by hearing, and this hearing comes by the word of Christ. All right. We simply have to deal with a hard question. It's a very hard question. Movement one is general revelation in nature. Movement two is the revelation of God in Scripture in the law, extended later in Scripture to all of Scripture. Movement number three is the application, but we're not there yet because we've got a sticky wicket to deal with first. And that is, how do we deal with the relationship between stanza one and stanza two? Because, I mean, here, here they just follow, but how are we supposed to think about this? And I'm going to suggest this isn't just a question of theological method. It's not just a question of biblical hermeneutics. It's a question of how we live in this world right now. It's a question as to how we see this world right now. It's a question as to how we see the role of government right now and law and, and, and the extent to which we should even speak certain things and, uh, and believe the culture around us to be obligated to certain things and accountable for certain things, obligated to certain things. And it, it is required that we think in terms, for instance, of the distinction between the law and the gospel, even as we're talking here about natural revelation and special revelation. The first thing I want to say is that I think many evangelicals think of it wrongly by thinking of it as somehow sequential. And, and by the way, the reason I mention the law and the gospel is because I hear many evangelicals mess that up. It's so that the gospel appears to be God's plan B after plan A, the law failed. So I hear some evangelicals say, you know, the law didn't work because Israel didn't keep the law. And therefore, plan B is a Messiah, a Christ, substitutionary atonement. That's not at all what the Scripture tells us. Not at all. God's one singular purpose of redemption was to redeem sinners through the atonement accomplished by His Son. The law served to make us yearn for Christ, and the law indicts us of our sin. It's absolutely necessary, but the gospel wasn't plan B. Special revelation wasn't plan B. It wasn't, God, it wasn't that God created the cosmos and put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, nothing. You know, 
thinking that they would figure it out. No, from the beginning of the Scripture, God speaks. God speaks. There's special revelation. Special revelation precedes natural revelation. Because even as we are told in Genesis that God created the cosmos, how did He do it? He speaks. He speaks, and, and, and that's not an accident. And, and then you have Adam and Eve, you know, and, and therefore he made the man and the woman, and he placed them in the garden, and he said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He spoke to them. He spoke to them, and the words are there. Scripture is there. Special revelation is there in the garden before sin. When he talked to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, it's important we know it's not sequential. It is, in a sense, sequential in our experience, though. We can admit that. We're obligated to special revelation even before we hear, to, to natural revelation, to general revelation, even before we hear the Word of God taught to us, the gospel preached to us. They're not equal. No, as a matter of fact, just as you speak of the law and the gospel, the law is God's gift, but it does not save. Jesus saves. In the same sense, God's revelation in the natural order is real, but it does not save. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have to hear the gospel. We have to hear the truth. We, we, we have to hear the word of God preached to us. Now, there's another, another issue I just have to face, and that is, you know, there are Others who look to this differently, and, and I, I want to look very quickly to what is different and isn't different. Can we do that real quickly? So, so number one, you say, well, what about our Roman Catholic neighbors? What do, they, what do they think about this? Because the general impression is the Roman Catholics have a much higher view of natural revelation than we do. I just want to tell you, that's not true. They have no higher view of natural revelation than we do. They have a higher view of sinners than we do. Okay? That is absolutely the case. They do not have a higher view of, of natural revelation. They, they don't believe in natural revelation any more strongly than we do. They just don't believe in sin as much as we do. And so, it's not a disagreement over the reality of divine revelation in, 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 in nature. It's not over the content. This is also important. We really don't differ with Roman Catholics over the content of natural revelation. It, it's not a disagreement over the grace of God, which gives us both forms of revelation. It, it, it's not very, very important here. Evangelicals hear me. You, you take the magisterial reformers, you take the Protestant tradition, there is no disagreement between Roman Catholics and Protestants over the obligation of all persons everywhere to obey the natural revelation of God. There, there is not a shred of distinction between the reformers and the Catholics. Of course, the Catholics are a little bit of a moving target here too. You have to remember that in response to Sola Scriptura comes the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent really leans into what we might call a natural theology uh, at the, in an argument with the Reformers' insistence upon Sola Scriptura. But it actually wasn't until the late 19th century, it was in 1870 in Vatican I, that the Roman Catholic Church officially taught that a person may reason to salvation by natural revelation alone. But Again, that was 1870, Vatican I, and, and we see that as a horrible error. I mean, it's a refutation of Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And let's just say the last thing we want to do is refute Paul. 
which is to refute the gospel. But as I said, it's not a disagreement over natural revelation. It's a disagreement over the sinner because in official Roman Catholic teaching, and this goes back to Trent, but it, it precedes Trent, but especially in Trent and in the, the, the tradition that follows, this is why we speak of total depravity. It is because Roman Catholic theology says that the will is corrupt by sin, Genesis 3, but not the intellect. Not the intellect. That the will is corrupt, but not the intellect. The intellect is not corrupted by sin. Now, that's a horrible, horrible, horrible problem. But let me just say, because this time is fleeting, your intellect is totally depraved. I don't have time to prove it. I don't think I need to. Okay? But again, the problem is not that we have a different view of natural revelation. We have a different view of the sinner. All right, very quickly. So why natural revelation? What, 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 how does it function now? You know, I, 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 just for the sake of perhaps some of you who are interested to trace this further, I would say that uh, if you're looking for someone who I think really helps to make this clear, it, it's Hermann Bavink. Uh, so many of his writings have now been translated in new editions, and they're, they're a wonderful gift to the church. But I think Bavink gets it exactly right. And I love the way he puts it. I'm paraphrasing it here because he uses more words than I have time for. But he says that we should see, as Reformed Christians, we should see natural revelation as God's gift to keep humanity alive until humanity can hear the gospel. And, and there's really something to that. Now, he goes on from that, and he describes, for example, what, what, what natural revelation does when he says, it is owing to general revelation that some religious and ethical sense is present in all men, that they have some awareness still of truth over falsehood, of good over evil, of justice and, and um, injustice, of beauty and ugliness. They know the distinction. That they live in relationship of marriage and the family by natural revelation, community and state, that they are held in check by all of these external and internal controls against degenerating into bestiality, that within the pale of these limits, they busy themselves with the production of things, the distribution and enjoyment of all kinds of spiritual material things. It says mankind is given general revelation to be preserved in its existence. That's, a, that's the, the sustenance, the protection that comes by God's natural revelation, maintained in its unity and uh, embedded in culture and able to continue its history. I love that. That means not, not continue your history. Okay. So, this is an obligatory knowledge. So, very quickly, this comes down to our understanding of whether our neighbor should be obligated to understand male and female. This is something I don't think Bavink ever knew he'd have to talk about. I think when he said marriage and family as obligatory upon all humanity by natural revelation, I don't think he was going to have to say that against the backdrop of what some of us see. I, I, I don't have time to extend this further. I simply want to say this means that I don't think Christians have any right to deny what we know is revealed in natural revelation, nor its obligatory status upon all people everywhere. And as Bavink would say, in order to keep them alive, 
and as we would say evangelistically, in order that we may preach to them the gospel. All right. So we come to a conclusion, and the passage ends with application. The Scripture reveals our errors. We pray for that in our prayer of confession. We want to know our hidden faults. Well, we're incapable, but the Scripture is capable. And the Scripture will keep God's servant from presumptuous sins and keep them from having dominion over us. And by God's grace alone can declare us to be blameless and innocent of great transgression. But then we know we've got to get to verse 14. We know that's where we have to end. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How will the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart, how will such things be acceptable in the sight of God? It is because He is there and He is not silent. It is because for God so loved the world that He forfeited His own personal privacy so that by all means of His own self-revelation as sinful creatures might know Him. And why? It is because for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is the good news of salvation. It comes to all who believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And that faith comes down to professing with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead. It is knowing that God in Christ saves sinners who are called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A tulip didn't tell me that. Your cockapoo didn't tell me that. The moon didn't tell me that. The sun, eager to leave its chamber, didn't tell me that. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. Oh my goodness, Father. How much you've given us in your word, which is perfect. Father, may we understand from this passage how rightly to live in this world in faithfulness, guided by your word, your law, knowing that there is no one who does not know certain truths. Father, can we bear testimony to those truths and ultimately testimony to Christ? To the glory of your name we pray. Amen.